Welcome to The Naked Truth. Peace to you. Let's pick up where we left off. We're in the book of Exodus now. We've made it through the entire book of Genesis. And I think after this reading tonight, we'll probably do a review of the whole chap book of Genesis. But it's just so much uh, to go over that I think we'll save that for next time. But for right now, let's pick up where we left off. We're at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Let's begin. So um, now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. So it's going to name off um, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. That's the forefather of the Israelites, the same Israel of today, um, and his children and grandchildren and so forth. So we're going to name off their names, and I'm just going to read through them because it's just that, like a lineage. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. It didn't mention Joseph, who was 12, but here we go. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. That's verse 5. So that's the 12th. But then remember, Joseph had two more, and they got added to that list of 12. So actually, I guess it's uh, 14 children of Israel, uh, of the tribes of Israel, even though it's always said it's 12 for whatever reason. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. So it's letting us know time's gone by, all that generation of people have passed away. From So it's been Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of Jacob's kids, and then even uh, Joseph, one of his last born, and um, Benjamin, his brother, the last born. And then also uh, all of that generation are just gone now. So it's letting us know a lot of time has passed while they're still in Africa, in Egypt. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiply and grew exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. So uh, they're uh, abundant people, a whole lot of people uh, like rabbits. There were lots and lots of them. Now there arose a new king over e Egypt who did not know Joseph. So now it's enough time that's passed that even the the uh, rulership of the area has changed um, from the pharaohs um, that were there when Joseph first arrived to now. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier. He's saying than they. So um, it's similar to how, if you look at now in America, just as an example, the demographics are changing, that uh, white supremacy and the system that enables it to continue for these centuries seems to be drawing to an end, if for no other reason, since people are so hard-hearted they won't change, uh, than the fact that people are mixing. The people have always mixed, since this is only the second book of the Bible, we know it's not a new thing. But people are always mixing what we call race, even though that's just something that's made up. That's not an actual biological term. But it, um, but people have always been mixing with each other so that it's getting to the point now where scientists or at least those who study uh, demographics believe that by, I think it's the year 2050, no longer will the white race of people, as they're called, uh, be the majority in America. And that terrifies a lot of people. And you see, as, particularly if they've benefited from the privileges and entitlement of being that um, dominant uh, majority in society so far and using it over other people who are not. So you see the same thing happen back in Exodus where people are afraid that they're gonna be outnumbered by, it's called uh, xeno, xenophobia, basically when you're afraid that the new ones are going to take over what's already there. And even though the people there are steadily mixing with each other, so it's actually not that terrifying on an, on an, on an individual level. But when it comes to power, it seems a lot of people use that majority, uh, that's why I guess they say there's um, safety in numbers, um, to rule over other people because they know they outnumber other people. Um, so here's their answer to it. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. So now they're concerned 
that if they don't handle the situation wisely, there'll come a point where uh, the land, that area will be at war with some other land and the people who have begun to outnumber them will join forces with their enemy and escape from the slavery they're in there. Because remember, they didn't start out as slaves there, but over the 400 plus years that they are there, they were enslaved, so they became slaves. So they're afraid that the slaves will become numerous, outnumber them and gain their freedom. Sound familiar? It's the same thing that happened in America where black people are steadily oppressed just based on the color of their skin in a fear that something else is gonna happen and black people will actually be able to rise above the oppression. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So uh, that was the answer to dealing with the slave question is to oppress them even more. And it's the same formula America seems to follow, oppress the black people even more. And that that's the answer to how to deal with black people. Instead of treating people as you'd like to be treated, loving your neighbor as yourself, you know, the thing that people preach on Sundays in the churches they go to, but don't actually uh, live it at all. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So uh, they, even though they afflicted and oppressed the people who were there voluntarily at first anyway, and now enslaved, now they've decided the way to handle them is to afflict them even more. But even that didn't work. That I guess it didn't work because when people are oppressed like that, it seems likely they'd huddle together if for nothing else other than support. And in that huddling, huddling together, you find love, you find affection, you find more children being born. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. So that means they really cracked the whip on them and made them work hard. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they were made, in which they made them serve was with rigor. So it's um, they're making them basically in the brickworks, making them form bricks and bake them, presumably with the heat of the sun, but also with ovens to bake the brick, harden it and use it for construction. So they put the slaves to work in construction again. Should sound very familiar because that's exactly the same thing America did with the African slaves brought here against their will, made them build up the country whether it's the railroads or even the White House. It was slaves that built the almost all of that infrastructure um, and almost all of them black. So not all the slaves are black and African, uh, but almost all of them were. And the ones that were treated the worst were absolutely black. Then the king of e Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. So a midwife is basically what they call doulas now, uh, someone to help a woman give birth when that time comes. And so he's given a message to the uh, women who help the uh, Hebrew women, the slaves give birth. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, but if it is a daughter, then you shall then he, she shall live. So it's an example of what we now call genocide, when you're trying to wipe out a people. And they intend to do it by killing off the males, since it's, again, the Bible is a very patriarchal document from beginning to the end, to the end of it, with only Jesus's message being the only non-patriarchal part of the Bible that I could find anyway. And so um, here's an example of it where they know that if the men, the males multiply, then they'll have wives, whether they're of their own or of another nation. And then in that sense, they'll continue to keep the race going but with the name passing on, because it's the male's name that generally passed on. And also with, in the case of black people, and it's almost certain these are black people they're talking about, even though history whitewashes it and calls Israelites back then white or you know non-black, they're in Africa for 400 plus years. They're mixing with the people and they've become, they've multiplied. They started out as 70 people, but now they've mixed with the people who were living there. So they're almost certainly are dark skinned people. No matter how you look at it, they're almost certainly dark skinned people. But, um, and in that, I mentioned that because black people are one of the uh, most dominant um, 
genotypes that there is as far as the features where um, if a black person mixes with any other race of person, uh, generally it's gonna affect that person, the child's skin tone, it's gonna affect the child's hair. Whereas other races don't have that same sort of dominance in the features that are are um, are passed down. So you could, uh, it's easy to see how if you, the more and more people that are being born, looking more and more like the, the slave class that you're trying to rule over are eventually gonna say, well, we outnumber you. Why in the world are we still letting you rule over us and taking power in that way? So they're deciding that they're gonna start killing off the boys and letting the girls live because the girls, they can just uh, usually generally dominate with brute strength, if nothing else. And if they need to just kill off their children through abortion or whatever other means they decide to, whereas it's not as, um, not as cut and dry as it is with males. Uh, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So even though they, um, they were given orders by the government, as you know, people now, the Blue Lives Matter people who ignore January 6th and the atrocities there and the fact that no tanks or guns or uh, armies were called in in that day, in that moment, to handle what was going on at all. Um, they ignore all that, but they get upset with Black Lives Matter marches and think that the whole gambit of army should be called out for, in those cases, dogs, water hoses, and whatever else that they use against Black people for generations now, who are seek, just seeking to be treated equally, which apparently under the Constitution claims uh, it's a truth that's self-evident that all men are created evil, equal, but we know that that also gets ignored when it's convenient. The Dred Scott ruling, for, in, for instance, is, shows that, that when it's convenient, they'll ignore Constitution, they'll ignore the Bible, they'll ignore Christian teachings, they'll ignore whatever they please if it means holding on to power, and they'll teach generations to do the same. It's sad, it's disgusting, it's hypocritical, and it's anti-Christ, it's anti-Christian. It's nothing uh, that Christ at all teaches or tells us to live by. And yet uh, society, especially American society, does it night and day for generations, for centuries now. Um, so now what he's telling them to do is uh, uh, kill off the boys. When you see the women giving birth, that's what the birth stool is. Um, apparently back then it, it probably made it easier to push a baby out. If you're just sitting, squatting, uh, depending on that stool, to help it, uh, push the baby out uh, rather than all the methods that are used now. So he's they've been given the order by the government that when you see the child being born, if it's a boy, kill it. And if it's a girl, she can live. Um, but the midwives, the uh, doulas, the women who were helping them give birth had the fear of God in them to the sense, in the sense that they weren't willing to go through with that murderous order, even though that's what they were commanded to do. Uh, they weren't willing to do that. Um, their souls meant more to them than uh, their jobs orders did. Something that people in law, who are in law enforcement now ignore all sorts of evil and go ahead and do it because it's their job. And they say, oh, well, they were just doing their job, just like people during the Holocaust, just like people throughout history did, ignored what they know to be right and wrong, uh, the differences between what they know to be right and wrong in favor of whatever it is that's paying them. And you see that happen again and again with tokens that pop up throughout society. Um, and they come in many different forms. There are raccoons, there are trans tokens, there are Latin tokens, there are female tokens that will betray their own interests, or at least the interests of people who are just like them in the same boat in favor of their own personal interests, generally money. Um, but the women back then weren't willing to do it. They aren't willing to do what they're told to do, just saying they're doing their job uh, and risk the death of their souls or at least their um, souls being looked at negatively in God's eyes. So the king, king of Egypt called the mid, for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? So the ruler is wondering, why have you um, disobeyed my order to kill off those male kids? Uh, like I told you to. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before 
the midwives come to them. So that's probably just making that up um, just to escape his wrath. But they're saying that the Hebrew women are um, livelier. It seems to me to say maybe they're just looser down there or more give birth easier is what they seem to be saying. I mean, biologically, that doesn't really make any sense, but it's probably something they could sell to someone who's clearly uh, racist, uh, afraid that the race of people there are going to overtake the race of people who are already there. So uh, that's the excuse they use. And they said, look, we can't get there fast enough. By the time we get there, the women already had the babies. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and people multiplied and grew very mighty. So it seems in doing that, um, helping them and not committing that murder of the children being born. Um, they, God gave them favor, uh, the midwives favor for doing that. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided household, provided households for them. So it seems that um, that was the favor God showed to them in being faithful to what they knew to be right rather than faithful to what was going to be their um, financial livelihood, their jobs. Excuse me a second. And in that faithfulness, they were provided for anyway by God, it says, uh, rather than the source, the government that was going to provide for them with that job as midwives. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So it's like he's given an edict now that um, if there's a boy born among them, just throw him into the river. Uh, Scandalous, but you know, it's what it says he uh, ordered. And if it's a girl, you can let her live. So now they're not worried, leaning on just the midwives to do it. He's telling all the people uh, if you see a, a boy born among them, go ahead and kill him, throw him into the river where presumably there's gators that, where they won't survive. It's killing them and um, crocodiles, I should say. Um, and um, and if there's girls, if it's a girl, you, she can live. So that's the order given out that he's afraid of the people there overtaking them. And that's the end of chapter one of Exodus. Let's move on to chapter two. And a man in the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So Levi is one of the sons of of Jacob, Israel, um, a.k.a. Israel. And um, he's taken a wife of one of his cousins. So the woman, and that's nothing new, that inbreeding is an ancient tradition and listed again and again throughout Genesis. This is just another example of it. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. So I'm not sure what they mean by beautiful child. Another translation is goodly as in attractive. Um, It seems to me what they must be saying though, for her to hide him would mean that he must've been soft looking or babies all kind of look alike anyway at some point. So most likely he, had a feminine look to him or a girly look to him that he could pass for a girl where that's not what they're saying, but it seems to be what they're saying. Otherwise, how is she passing him? How is she keeping him, hiding him three months? And uh, why would they mention that he's beautiful? Whatever the case may be, she's hidden three months to keep him alive instead of him being thrown into the river like the other boys. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. So that shows how desperate she is to save her baby. First, she hid him three months, and then now she's even willing to give him up like any woman who gives up their child for adoption, for instance, because of whatever reason they believe they can't take care of him, or they know it's a bad situation that the child's in, or whatever the case may be, she's parting with her own child, uh, who she gave birth to, to save the child alive. And she, I guess she feels it's more, um, he has a better chance of making it in that, um, in that basket than he would staying there with her. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So this lets us know that it didn't mention that the Levite who took a wife had a child who was a daughter, but clearly they also had a daughter. That's uh, more proof that the more patriarchy in the Bible the sister didn't get mentioned before, but she's getting mentioned now 
And presumably she's older than the child was because how else would she be able to stand far off and see what happens to him if uh, she were younger than him? And he's only a couple of months old, a few months old. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. So now um, the royal family is there at the river bathing. Uh, one of them, and she sees the uh, ark, the basket that uh, the baby was set in to save its life. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So it's not clear how she knows it's one of the Hebrews' children, other than the fact that the child is probably circumcised, so she could probably see its penis that it's been cut and know that, oh, it must be one of the Hebrew children. Although it's not clear in the movie, uh, what is it, the one about uh, the Disney movie, It they made it clear that it was a Hebrew child by the cloth that was included in the basket. But it seems to be most likely it's the circumcision that is how she was able to tell, but who knows. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? So the child's sister has somehow made it probably by divine providence to be among Pharaoh, uh, alongside Pharaoh's daughter, the king's daughter, to actually see her brother get rescued out of the reeds where he was uh, cast off. And now um, the Prince of Egypt, that's the Disney movie. I couldn't think of it. Um, so now his sister's there to see he was born or see that he's safe and in Pharaoh's daughter's hand. So he's basically made it to the royal household um, now saved by the king's daughter and has his sister right there nearby also to help uh, with his well-being. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. So again, seems like divine providence, like the God watching out for things happening there for them to um, not, for the child to be discovered by the royal family and then his sister to be nearby to um, make sure he's taken care of. And not only that, have his mother be called, the one who gave birth to him, um, to uh, assist in the child's rearing as far as um, uh, breastfeeding and whatnot. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give, your, give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So now you see the mother being called without the Pharaoh's daughter knowing it being called to come and nurse the child, something she would have did anyway if she weren't in that, in the situation where she had to give up the child in the first place. But now she's gotten her child back. She's getting to nurse the child and see it grow. And she's getting paid for it by the people who are oppressing her, who threatened the child's life in the first place. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. So it's not an official adoption as we'd call it nowadays, but it's exactly what it seems to have happened. Now the child was given to Pharaoh's daughter and raised as her daughter, as her son, rather than the, the birth mother's son, even though she's the one who's raised him and nursed him and been with him through, those, through that time. And he's given the name Moses, which uh, translates to drawn out, if I'm, yeah, drawn out. Um, to, um, it, that's the baby's name. And that's, this is basically the origin, the, the native nativity story of Moses, the Old Testament patriarch, the one who uh, later presents the Ten Commandments. Um, now, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So now time has passed, he's grown up and he sees some of the injustice going on in the land. And in this case, it's not necessarily injustice, but it's um, um, violence that he sees happening in uh, around him. And so he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So. Um, he saw one of the ruling class abusing one of the oppressed class. He saw the Egyptians beating on one of the Hebrews. And by this time, it's probably hard to tell them just by appearance. So most likely it's their uh, rank in society that he's able to tell one from another. And he saw that the one in power was abusing the powerless, much like how Black Lives Matter notices how 
the powerful beat, kill, and get away with killing the powerless. Um, and also look the other way if it's someone that looks like them and lets it happen, like January 6th. Um, so he's noticed the injustice, and when he had a chance, he did something about it. Uh, he killed the Egyptian. That'd be the one who's doing the oppressing. Uh, and when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? So now in the first case, in the first instance of injustice, he saw the powerful abusing the powerless. He sided with the powerless and killed the powerful. Now he sees both who are oppressed. That'd be like black on black crime in modern terms or um, women fighting each other, even though both are oppressed or whatever the case may be. He sees that happening now. And instead he's reasoning with them, wondering why are you why are you fighting? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. So he tries to make peace or be a peacekeeper between them, or at least get them to go in the way of peace. And they throw up the fact that they know he killed the Egyptian who was oppressing them. Um, and they, they throw it up in his face and they wonder, well, you're going to do the same thing to them. And so he realizes that it's not a secret. Um, and he sort of panics. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So he's a wanted man at this point, And he flees from Pharaoh, the people who he was adopted into, um, and away from his own people who he was born into. So he's fled. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their fa their father's flock. So Midian is still an area of that a part of that part of the world. Uh, the Middle East. Uh, um, actually, I wonder if that's actually in Africa. I don't think that is African, but it is Middle, uh, Middle Eastern. And that's where he's fled to what we call Middle East now. Um, and so that's where he's fled to. And he sees some of the people there, uh, the daughters of the land, the women of the land. Uh, tending to their flocks. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So it's not real clear why the shepherds would be driving the shepherdesses away uh, other than just, you know, brute force and have the ability to, or maybe because of resources, because we saw in Genesis, it was that was a big point of contention again and again, the resources being uh, considered limited and not wanting to be shared as far as the wells. So again and again, people would fight over that. Whatever the case may be, may be they um, tried to prevent the women from tending to their flocks the same way they were. But Moses stood up for them and helped them. When they came to Raul, their father, he said, how is it that you've come so soon today? So apparently just having the one guy, Moses, there to help um, did a lot to help speed up the process of getting the flocks watered. And they said an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flocks. So I guess he was just strong enough to, um, I don't know, fill the troughs quicker than the women would be able to do. It's not real clear. Uh, how come it would be that much quicker, especially if there's just one guy and presumably more of the females, they couldn't work together and accomplish the same thing. Uh, not clear. Um, and anyway, at any rate, they're recognizing that it was an Egyptian. That's what they're calling Moses, an Egyptian. So that lets us know his appearance was almost certainly an Egyptian appearance, not uh, uh, of some other ethnicity, um, unless his clothes gave him away, which seems unlikely. But um, anyway, they recognized that they had help and they shared that with their father. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you've left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. So I don't know whether the father is elderly or what, that he wasn't out doing some of that work or at least helping with some of the work, whatever the case may be. He um, tells his daughters that uh, basically letting him know if the guy was uh, friendly enough nice enough to help them, generous enough to help them, that they shouldn't just uh, thank him with nothing, that instead they should uh, call him back to their 
presence and feed him. Then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. So even though these are Midianites, it seems they have the same sort of patriarchal society set up where the women are given like property to. All right, so uh, the children of Israel are crying out because they're enslaved there. Let me just read that one more time. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So that's Exodus chapter two, verse 23. And the people there are enslaved. And of course they're miserable and they're crying out to God for help and deliverance from it. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So it seems like in the process of time over those generations, the connection that the God in Genesis had with the people seems to have become distant where he doesn't seem to pay the same amount of attention to them as he did before to let them fall into slavery, hard bondage and mistreatment. Um, it seems that the God mentioned in Genesis was much more attentive to what was going on with them, especially their reproductive habits. And we went over that again and again um, since Genesis chapter one. Um, but in this case, it, they've been sort of remembered by God and their suffering. Um, and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So it seems God is now, they've gained God's attention again through their suffering. And um, now God's decided to do something about it. So that's the end of chapter two of Exodus. And since it's our Saturday night reading where we read for an hour, let's go ahead on to chapter three of Exodus. Um, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So this is interesting because we just read where their father's name wasn't Jethro. Um, what was it? Reuel was, there, was the father's name, his father-in-law's name. And yet suddenly now his father-in-law's name is Jethro. No explanation at all, but it says that's who his name, what his name is and that he's the priest of Midian. So whatever religion they were practicing back then, he apparently was a part of the, the, the um, orthodoxy organization of it. Um, but, and so Moses now is shepherding his flock, uh, around a mountain An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So, um, a couple of things, let's see who they're calling Lord here. Um, angel of the Lord. So here they're calling the Lord Jehovah. So we've read in other places in the Bible where Lord is translated as El, translated as Elohim, translated here as Jehovah. So um, it seems to me this is a different, another entity, a different deity that's being referred to because remember when we read in the New Testament, the translation of Lord by Jesus in particular is seems to always be Elohim, uh, a generic, it seems, translation for the word God or Lord and never Jehovah. And yet you see here, Jehovah is who, uh, um, what the, who the word Lord is translated as, just as a side note. Um, so it's the angel of Jehovah is saying that's appeared to him in a burning bush. So the bush is on fire, but it's not being burned up. Then Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush does not burn. So of course, that would be interesting to see something on fire, but not being consumed. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So let's just see just out of curiosity, what Lord and God are translated as here. So Lord is still being translated as Jehovah in this verse, but God is being translated as Elohim. So that's what I was saying. God seems to be, although it's capitalized, so it doesn't seem to be a generic term for God, but God, God in a, a proper, uh, God Almighty specifically. So that's, I don't know. That does it. I don't know. <laughs> so you can see what it's saying. Um, that's who's being called God in this part of the Bible um, and calling Moses. Um, 
Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Um, so for whatever reason, um, the area that Moses is in is considered holy by the deity there interacting with him. And it's not real clear why, um, but whatever the case may be, he's telling him to take the sandals off his feet as part of his um, approach to um, the deity talking with him or interacting with him. Moreover, he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So the deity identifying himself, or at least interacting with Moses now, is identifying himself as the Elohim, that's the God it's being translated as, of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, it was enough to terrify Moses, as I guess any um, divine experience would at least make you uh, take note. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So if God notices their sorrows and has seen their suffering, then why in the world would God let it continue? Why would God let it get to that point? except for maybe a big picture reason that is going to become clear. Whatever the case may be, uh, God's letting him know that, and I'm just going to say God because that's how it's translated um, here. Um, and just for to keep from being repetitious with the whole translation of the word Lord and God. Um, so the God they're interacting with here is, is acknowledging the suffering that the Israelites are going through while they're in Egypt. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, I'm sorry, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So saying the deity here is letting them know uh, letting Moses know it's there's a time come where for them to be delivered from the slavery they've been uh, in bondage in in Egypt and taking them to other lands. Uh, so this lets us know, even though the Bible doesn't go into great detail of all these other people and nations that it's talking about, they clearly were around back then. Um, and that that's where they're going to be delivered to what we call now the Holy Land or Palestine or Israel all those names pointing to the same area. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So the slavery that they're being uh, tormented with is has um, made it to God's attention. And come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So here, this deity is identifying them as his people. Um, but we know later on, or actually we know from a previous reading that um, according to uh, the same scriptures, uh, the deity identifies the Egyptians as his people saying, Egypt, my people, Israel, my inheritance, and the Assyrians, my, um, um, I forget what the Assyrians are called, but all three are considered, the Egyptians specifically are considered his people. So it's not real clear now why it's saying that now the Israelites are now, um, the children of Israel are now his people, even though we know from the Old Testament that that's um, from Genesis, that that is what it says. So it seems contradictory. Um, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's letting us know that both the Egyptians and the Israelites are the people of the same deity the same entity. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he's wondering, uh, why are you choosing me for this? What makes you think I'm the one who has the authority to deliver the people from the slavery they're dealing with? So he said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you should serve God on this mountain. So, um, that seemed, that's the sign that Moses is given as a the, the, the recognition of why he's the chosen one, how he's the one 
that's going to be the one to deliver them from the Egypt. I mean, from the slavery there in Egypt. And let me see. And God here is translated into Elohim again. So not Jehovah, but Elohim saying that that's how you're going to know. And when you do get rescued, that that's where you're going to go back to worship God. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So this is an interesting passage. I don't even know what it's going to say once we translate it. But Moses is asking the deity, the entity he's interacting with. When the people ask him, what's God's name? When you, uh, when he goes and says, it's time for me to rescue you because God sent me to. And they ask, well, what's God's name? What is he supposed to tell them? So this is what God answers. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So now he's asked what his name is, point blank. And God says, I am. So let's see how that translates. Maybe that translates to one of the names we've heard over time that God means. And God, so God is being translated as Elohim there said to Moses, I am. And that says, Haya. Uh, let's see how it's pronounced or believed to be pronounced. Strong's H, 1961. Haya. 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 So th that sounds, seems to me that that's probably where people start saying, Yah is the name of God. Um, but you see there, it says Haya. And that just, and that's the translation of the words, I am. Um, so make sense of that if you can. Um, but it seems to me that God's letting him know I am. Um, let me see. Oh, and that I am also brings to mind what Jesus says, um, when he's confronted and almost, uh, taken out by the religious people who are confronting him. When he says, most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am letting him know give me i believe letting us know that there's a timelessness to god and that it's not oh i was or i'm going to be it's that i am i just am and i am back then i am right now and i am in the future i just am letting him know he is existence moreover god said to moses thus you shall say to the children of israel the god of your fathers the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob has sent me to you this is my name forever, and this is my my memorial to all generations. So, strangely enough, here it's saying that uh, the God he's interacting with here is saying that his name is I Am, and that's going to be his name forever. And yet, you see church church after church after church coming up with all sorts of different names for God, whether it's Yah or El or Jehovah or Yahweh or Yahweh, whatever the case may be. None of those things are what this initial uh, interaction between God and Moses says God's name is. Instead, it says, I am, and that that's his name, and that tell him I am sent you, and we just saw the Hebrew translation that is Haya. So go figure. But um, here, this deity is saying, that's going to be my name forever to all generations. And we know um, traditions and stuff in churches just don't preach that. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I've surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. So now he's, this is the message he's, that Moses is being given um, by the entity, by the deity, um, to take that message back to them and say, God's noticed your suffering. And I've said that I, and I've said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. So basically saying this is the message you're going to take to them, that God's seen your suffering and going to deliver you from it and not only deliver you from it, but take you to a land of plenty, a land of abundance. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So that's the message he's been given to the for the people and for the rulers, for the government. To let them know um, 
God's with us and we need to go um, on a journey and worship, basically. But I'm sure that the king of, Israel, of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So even though he's sending him with this message and this mission, he's already let him know before he even goes that it's not going to be received well by the government. Um, and he's not going to let you go with ease. It's going to take um, some strength to deliver them. But I'm sure, uh, um, uh, let me see. Oh, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders. And um, let me read that again. I'm sorry. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. So now he's been told that his message is going to be rejected by the government, but that even if it's rejected, God is going to provide signs and wonders, miraculous events to um, back up the word and still deliver them out of their bondage, out of slavery. And I will get his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. So he's letting them know not only are going to be delivered, they're going to be delivered from the slavery um, that they're being forced to endure, but they're going to be enriched once they are delivered and not just be left broke. Like the way black people were done in America, relieved of the slavery, but still oppressed with Jim Crow laws and the reparations being given to the slave owners while the slaves were still tormented and terrorized by the groups like the KKK and white supremacist laws and rule that still kept a thumb, a knee on the neck of the black people who were set free, not being set free with an abundance like the Hebrews are being set free here in the narrative in Exodus. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So God's given him the order here to not only are you going to be set free from the slavery, but when you're set free, you're going to have a whole abundance of things to take with you. And the people who are going to provide that abundance of things are the people who are the ones enslaving you in the first place. Um, and that's the end of chapter three. And we still have 15 more minutes. So let's go ahead and get into Exodus chapter four. Let's see how long it is. We may be able to get through it also. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's that long. So yeah, let's go ahead and go into Exodus chapter four. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So Moses is wondering, well, what if I get rejected? What if the people don't want to hear it? And they say God hasn't appeared to you. He's wondering, how does he deal with the doubters? How does he deal with the rejection? And here you see the word Lord is being translated back to Jehovah now. And they're wondering, well, what if they say Jehovah hasn't sent you? So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. So now um, it, the rod seems significant because now he's going to use it for different signs and wonders, almost like a magician would use a, a, a wand or something. Now he's the rod is going to be significant. So he's asking him, what's that in his hand? And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. So that's already a divine occurrence, something supernatural happening. The rod, presumably wood, that Moses was carrying around once he threw it on the ground like he was commanded to and was obedient, it became a snake. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. So somehow miraculously, the rod became a snake and then when touched again, became a rod again. So that seems to be what we'd call a magic trick. Um, but that's what he's going to use. He's saying use that as a sign to them. To let them know there's a divine power at work with you uh, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So he's saying, use that staff, that trick with the staff becoming a snake as a sign to them that God is with you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was, was leprous like snow. So leprosy is um, one of the diseases in the Old Testament and in the New 
that one of the things that it called for was social distancing, something people rail against now, but it happens and it's not new and it's for the greater good of society so that the disease doesn't spread. So it's a disease. And so he's saying, he's giving him another sign saying, basically put your hand in your robe and your shirt and your tunic in your garment. And when you pull it back out, it's going to look like you're diseased. It's going to be diseased. Um, and that's how, uh, when he says like snow. So apparently that's one more sign that Moses is almost certainly not white. Because if a white person puts their hand in their garment and pulls it back out and it's still white, they aren't going to think that's disease. But if someone dark skin puts their hand in their bosom and their garment, whatever the case may be, and pulls it out and suddenly it's white, then obviously something's gone wrong and it will be a sign. So he's letting them know that that will be another sign. He said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. So that lets us know the rest of his flesh at the very least was not pale white. Maybe he was tan. Maybe he was pecan tan. Maybe he was jet black. We don't know, but he clearly was not pale snow white. Because otherwise, he would, there would have been no difference in his hand going in his bosom and when it came back out. Just another example of how history and societies will whitewash things and pretend like all of the people in the Bible are white. They are not, clearly. Then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. So now he's been told, okay, well, the people may, if they reject the first sign with the snake and the, st the staff becoming a snake, then let the... Um, uh, sign of your skin changing color uh, be the um, a sign to them. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you should take water from the river and pour it on the, on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So he's giving him yet a third sign of um, supernatural events that he can use to persuade the people to believe him. If they don't believe his words, if they don't believe the state, the, the if, he, if they don't just accept his word that he's interacted with God, then he's giving him sign after sign after sign to show the people to convince them. Then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, he's not elo eloquent, neither before nor since you've spoken to your servant. And he's saying he's slow of speech and slow of tongue. So it sounds like he's uh, backpedaling from the mission, saying um, he's really not worthy to do it. He's not a great speaker. That's what eloquent means, that he, he's not going to be eloquent. He's not going to be able to persuade him with his words. Um, and he's saying, and he's actually slow of speech, like he may stutter even, um, and he won't know what to say. He's like, that's not going to convince anybody. So the Lord said to him, who's made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? So now uh, uh, it seems God may be getting a little testy with him, saying, wait a minute, I'm the one who made, created you. I'm the one who created your mouth and created even the deaf and the mute and the blind and the seeing. God is the one who created all those things. So he's saying, so I already know how you are, and I still chose you. So don't think that that's going to be an acceptable excuse since uh, the creator is the one who already put you in that situation in the first place. So let's see how Moses handles that. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what, this, what you shall say. So he's like, no, 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 don't use that excuse of uh, you stutter or you don't know, you're not good with words. Don't use that excuse. I'll be the one to give your mouth the words. But he said, oh, my Lord, Please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So Moses is like not really willing to go on this mission. And, you know, it's understandable why. Um, he doesn't think the people will believe him. And it's clear the people won't believe him. Otherwise, he wouldn't need these other different signs to show to them to get them to believe. But not only that, remember, he fled from where he was because he was a wanted man for the murder he committed or for killing the Egyptian who um, was tormenting one of the Hebrews. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses because Moses basically, basically said, send, send anybody else, but don't send him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, it's not Aaron, the Levite, your brother. I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also uh, coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. So 
Now, Moses also has another brother, another sibling now. We know about the sister he had who fetched his mama and got her to be the nurse, a nursemaid for him when he was a baby. But now he also has a brother, it says Aaron. And it's not real clear how they have Aaron since the whole kill off the male children was already in effect before Moses was born. So either Aaron is much older um, than Moses is, or he, I guess, was born after him while he's been living there in Midian and on this sort of um, odyssey away from his people. It's not real clear, um, but he's, he's letting him know he has an, his other brother, Aaron, or his brother, Aaron, um, will be his mouthpiece, basically, and that he's going to re have a reunion with them. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall say, what you shall do. So now it's the God, the deity here interacting with them is letting them know, don't worry about how you're going to speak and what to say. I'll compel you or induce you and uh, the message that comes out of your mouth and what you should say. So he shall be your spokesman to the people and he himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to, the, to him as God. So he's letting him know that um, Aaron will be the public face of the ministry. You will be the one telling him what to say. And God is going to be the one telling him, telling Moses what to say. So it's like a, um, an order of, um, of authority. Let me see how it's translated just out of curiosity. And so here it says, and you will be to him as God. Um, God here is being translated back to Elohim, not Jehovah, not El, not Yah at all. So go figure. You shall take his rod in your hand with which you shall do the sign. So he's letting, oh, you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. So he's letting him know this is what your ministry is going to be. You're going to be uh, the one I interact with. You're going to pass on the message to Aaron, your brother. He's going to be the public face or voice for the ministry and use the rod for the signs. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro, Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. So Moses probably wasn't enthusiastic about going to uh, parting away from his family there that he gained now, Jethro, Raul, whichever one you call him, and the children uh, that he's had there while he's in Median. And um, so he's asking his father-in-law for leave from his family to go handle the mission God's sending him on. And his father-in-law tells him, go in peace, like, do what you got to do. Now the Lord said to Moses in Median, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. So that's what makes me think maybe Aaron is his younger brother, not an older brother, because maybe the people who had put out that law of killing off the male children had died, and so maybe that law has expired. I don't know. But whatever the case may be, God's letting him know, don't fear those people who were looking for you, who put out that warrant on your, for you, uh, uh, the death warrant for you. They're all gone. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. So load, Moses loaded up his, his people with his donkey, his immediate immediate family, and headed back to, back to Egypt where he was exiled from. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So you can imagine how disheartening that would be if you're sent on a mission. And when you're sent on a mission, you're told from the start that they're going to resist your your uh, they're going to resist your mission left, right and sideways. And I'm going to have to perform special miracles, miraculous wonders to even get them to hear and heed you and let you uh, let your message be. Because and on top of that, he's saying he's going to harden his heart. So let him know I'm sending you on this mission, but I'm going to make your opposition strong. It, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So now um, that's part of the message that Moses is being given to take back with him. That um, So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. 
But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So it seems like a strange mission uh, message to come from God that to let my son go. Uh, and if you don't, I'm going to kill yours. But that's the message Moses is given to take back with him. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So this is a mysterious passage here. Let me break. Okay, so just to recap that. So, and it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So this is sort of a mystery. Why, why all of a sudden would God meet them in the camp after sending him on this mission and then be out to kill him? So whether it's out to kill Moses or out to kill one of his sons, it's not real clear. But the Lord here is being translated as Jehovah again. Um, so, and the hymn that is talking about it, who he's out to kill is not real clear or why, but whatever the case may be, now it seems that um, God's out for blood. And it seems like a strange narrative altogether, because if God's so willing to just like that kill off um, Moses or his son, whatever, they, whichever one it's referring to, why wouldn't God just kill off the slave owners or the people oppressing the people and do the same thing would happen in America? in America, kill off the evil slave owners who are abusing the people and just set the people free that way. Why make it go through all of this rigmarole? Um, but whatever. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. So none of this makes any sense. Why, why God would be out to kill uh, his son doesn't really, it's not real clear, but why also would circumcising the child, um, and why is the mama, the mama performs circumcision, and then she throws the foreskin, because that's what circumcising is, at Moses' feet, uh, and blaming him for the whole situation, I guess, because he's being faithful to the message that he's been given. It really doesn't make any sense to me at all, uh, why God would be out to kill him, or any of it, but it's what it says, so I'm just reading it to you. Um, so she circumcised their child through the skin at Moses' feet and then sort of accuses him of being the cause of it. So he let him go. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So maybe, I guess, because of the whole uh, circumcision covenant from Genesis, that that's part of why, uh, but it still doesn't make any sense why that would suddenly be an issue between them and why God would swoop down on them to kill them off or any of it. It, I, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm just reading to you what it says. And the Lord said, Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So now God's still interacting with people in the sense that now he's interacting with his brother Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron, and giving him a message and a directive of what to do and where to go. And he did it. And he met Moses again. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. So Moses is relaying the message to him of the mission and the different parts that it's going to entail. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. So um, Moses and Aaron have teamed up now and gathered the elders of the people. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So they're being faithful to the to the, the mission of doing what they were told to do, saying what they were told to say. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. So the, uh, the, the uh, words and deeds were persuasive enough to get the people to go ahead and heed the message and uh, respect the message and follow what it is Moses and Aaron had to say. And that actually ends Exodus chapter four. I guess we will get through these though, all in the Bible eventually after all, God willing. Because now we're on to the second book and we're already four chapters in with just the first reading. I appreciate you checking it out with me and hope it was a blessing for you. If you're curious about joining me for more, you can, um, 
Join me again on Mondays and Wednesdays around 6 p.m. Eastern time where we focus on the Gospels. That's the words of Jesus himself um, on those days. And then on Saturday nights, like tonight after midnight, 12.15 a.m. ish, early Sunday mornings, we'll pick up where we left off here in the Old Testament um, with the book of Exodus. So just so you understand what the difference is, in case it's your first time reading with me, um, I consider myself a Christian. And it turns out out of the 60 plus books in the Bible, only six of them have anything at all that Jesus had to say. That's where the whole red letter Christianity concept originates because Jesus's words appear in only those six books. And if you have a red letter edition Bible, you can see those letters, uh, those words, Jesus's message appear in red letters. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the rest of the Bible are teachings of other people, other, many times other gods, other deities, entities, and religions. They're not all Christianity at all, but the Christian message just lies in those six books truly in just the four for sure gospel books um, but then also sprinkling in those other two books the book of acts and the book of revelation and the rest of the bible are other religions and other teachings and things that you can still glean things from but they have very little to do with your christian walk if you happen to be a christian um so you can still believe what you want to believe but when it comes to our uh christian walk if you're a christian why in the world will anyone else be given the authority over what your uh, walk, your compass, your map to salvation would be other than Christ himself? Um, so that's what we do. If you're interested in more, know more about me, you can um, check out my website. If you're an adult, it's hungtgirl.com, H-U-N-G-T-G-I-R-L.com. And you can explore body, mind, spirit, and soul with the links on the left. Um, and if you're interested in past readings, check out the Spirit and the Soul pages where you can see past readings of the Naked Truth there at, or hear them in some cases, uh, where I've cataloged them by chapter and um, in some cases by subject to make it easier for you to figure out. Um, I think that's about it. I appreciate you checking me out and hope you will join me again. Please stay safe. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. And thanks again. God bless you and peace to you. See you next time.